Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to another episode of Best Girl Grip. I keep saying in lockdown, but I guess we're not really in that anymore. Uh, so I was I was thinking maybe I should start calling it Best Girl in the Grip of a Pandemic, but it's slightly less catchy. Um, I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast interviewing women in the film industry about navigating that film industry. I've got what I consider to be a very exciting episode this week, and it's with Mahalia John, who is a central and clapper loader. If you have no idea what that is, don't worry, we get into it. I was somewhat clueless going into this, and I really appreciate Mahalia's time in breaking it down for me. Straight off the bat, I'll say this is one of my favourite conversations I've had for the podcast. It's very giggly, and Mahalia's just a very open and lovely and funny person to talk to. So in that regard, it was uh, very easy. Um, but also, besides interrogating how Mahalia uh, worked her way into the camera department, and what that experience has been like for her, and, and what it's taught her, we also spend some time talking about the thorny and topical issues uh, that have come up around Black Lives Matter. Mahalia is mixed race and I came across her on Instagram after she published a post entitled To My White Friends in the UK Film Industry. I've hyperlinked to that post and I impel you to read it and then take up Mahalia's advice and do some reading and learning beyond that. But yeah, so um, I saw that post and I immediately knew that Mahalia's perspective would be unique and I was hoping that maybe she could expand on some of the points she made in the post but also just use this platform, however small it is, to talk about how she got into the film industry, uh, because that is one of the salient statements that she makes. This is a nepotistic industry, and people of colour aren't always taught about the job roles that exist, or granted access to them. And Mahalia sets a great example, I think, in both existing and excelling in the film industry, and I am very grateful that she wanted to talk to me about her career thus far. So, as always, I hope you learn something and, and take something from it. I do this podcast because it's a great way for me to learn and ask questions in the guise of a conversation, but I think it's something we should all be doing, whether we're recording or not, you know, just just being more mindful, more curious, and and asking the difficult questions of ourselves and and not just people of colour. So um, I'll stop waffling now and uh, let you get on with listening to it. Here's episode 59 of Best Girl Grip. not be the beginning of your kind of film story but it feels to me like a good place to start and that's with where you went to university if you did uh, and if so what did you study? I did not go to university yes so okay. I was one of them I just left school well I knew I wanted to work in film because I did do you know the BFI Film Academy? Yes I do very well. Yes so I did that when I was I did the BFI Film Academy when I was 16 and 17 and then I was like okay well, I know exactly what I want to do, finish my A-levels and then just went out and started working. And then a lot of the pe- the friends that I'd made on the BFI Film Academy went to university. So I sort of took the best parts of their degree. So I worked on all their films and then I got to borrow all the equipment from the universities mm. through them. But I'm not 50 grand in debt. So was it being on that like residential um, that kind of gave you the idea that it might be better to kind of jump straight into it and kind of forego the academic aspect? Yeah, yeah. Well, I um, so I applied for it as a director because I was 16, so that's the only <laughs> role in film that I knew. Yes. Uh, and then they put me on it as a cinematographer. I then spent the two weeks at the residential learning about camera. And I was like, oh, this is really good. 
I quite like this. So I always say that the BFI literally changed my life because I wouldn't yeah. be here without it. I would like, they completely set me on that path. Yeah. And then I think no university course really appealed to me in terms of how practical it was. I, I went to a lot of open days because I went to a school that was very much like, you have to go to university. So I did go and look at them. But all the courses, it seemed to be, yeah, they just never really sat right with me. It was like never enough practical or the kits that you were allowed to hire out. It's like you could only get the really good kit when you were in third year, which like if you're in a university, it makes sense. But for me, that would, I guess that felt quite frustrating. So I just went, oh, you know what, I'm just going to go out and just do it. And how did you hear about the BFI opportunity? Yeah, so my, we had like a couple of family friends, like, well, one of our family friends is a commercials DP. So mm. I'd been on set, like just like visited a set with him. I used to watch, you know, do you remember DVD extras? Yes, I do. And they'd have like the behind the scenes yeah, yeah, yeah. videos. So I, I watched those religiously, like more yeah. than the films sometimes. And all the commentaries, um, the director's commentaries, I used to love those. I remember watching those videos and being like, that looks fun. I want to do that. I want to be part of whatever that is. So I think from a young age, I was sort of thinking about that. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, wait, this is actually a career. And then I found out more about it. And then mm. I think I must have just stumbled across it online and then applied and I went in so it was good. After that point did it did it feel apparent to you or clear to you what the next steps were you know how you got your foot in the door? I think the BFI like did a very good job of like teaching you how it works and like the hierarchy and how sort of, of like as much as they can in two weeks like how the how that journey works and then just sort of as I be, like started on it then you like learn the next step and then learn the next step and like you just you, it just kept going so I got I think I got set up very well and what was your first job on set what as in like paid yeah what was your first official yeah job that you felt official, yeah, you were getting a paycheck for well so I worked for free for a very long time as okay. did most of us but I was very in the very fortunate position that I grew up in London so I could just live at home which I appreciate a lot I'm very lucky and so I worked I think I started as a runner I must have um most people do yeah most (laughs) people do I think I did like two short films as a runner and I went oh I hate this I'm never (laughs) doing this again and then I moved into I think I did like BTS video and then eventually started training and loading on student films and short films and stuff and then Yes, I guess my first paid job was I was so inexperienced, but I got taken up to Lincolnshire for a five day short film. And I think the rate was like £75 a day. And I remember being like, oh, my God, I'm getting paid. Like, oh, my God. But I look back at that now and I'm like, £75. I worked so hard, but I was really green. So I guess now would be a good time to ask, what does a clapper loader do? Um, What are your responsibilities on set? Can you can you talk to me a little bit about that? Okay, so um, the way I explain it to at like dinner parties to people <laughs> who have no idea that there are even people who work in film, I say, you know, the person who does the clapperboard, I do that, and they go, <laughs> oh, and then ask no further questions <laughs> usually. <laughs> and but that's like a very that's the most visible part of the job, I think. Mm. So there are a set number of people who work within the camera department and I am a member of that hierarchy and I work within that system and that team. But the clapper loader, if you're on the floor, if you're on set, you tend to be running 
a lot of it. It depends on who your focus puller is, but a lot of the time you are running the floor, you're in charge of the trainees, you're keeping an eye on what's going on, you're like giving orders to like work, you're trying to find out where we're going next, what we're doing. And yeah, generally just like where equipment's going. And then I also central load, which is the person, which is the person on the truck. So it's all the closest you can get to an office job in the camera department which is what I'm doing at the moment actually on this okay. job and uh but if you're if you're working on if you're shooting on film then I'm also the person that loads the film into the mags and right. then you do a lot of admin and office work as well which is a uh, very which is really fun. So you've confirmed uh or you've spoken about the sort of the most visible part of the role um which is clapping the board and you mentioned there that maybe people stop asking questions after that. So I guess what I'd like to know is, you know, what happens after that point? Um, what are you doing on set um, once that moment has happened? You have an exit plan. So mm-hmm. you obviously put, your, put the board in front of the actor's face, clap it, and then get out of there as quickly as possible. Sometimes that involves crouching just underneath the camera or like accidentally behind the director. Or <laughs> mm-hmm. But you leave and then you wait for the scene to be over and then when that scene is over you either go and check the camera you read settings off of it or you do something that was asked of you maybe like a little while ago that you now have time to do but uh, during takes most I guess the actors are usually the only people working except for the operators and the grip as well because obviously they're moving but everyone else is just waiting and then yeah once that takes over then or once that setup's over and you move on then it's a case of okay, what are we doing next? Do we need to change a lens? Do we need to change filters? How long are we going to have to wait? Are they changing lighting? Are we moving anything? Are we moving to a different set? So it's like thinking about that and then next steps. And sometimes you'll have known, okay, after this, we're going to move to that room over there. So immediately, as soon as that shot's finished, you just you like you put that plan into action that you've already spoken to the trainees about it, spoken to the other loaders about and then and then you move on and then it just repeats itself it's a very nice sort of process <laughs> what do you enjoy most about it I like how busy it is and how it's a lot of problem solving and everything I guess it just like everything sort of makes like it's like making the world make make sense almost and like keeping everything organized and the more on it you are and the more focused you are the better you are at your job it's not just relying on like natural skill. I don't know. It's just, a, it's a very, just, I like how busy it is and how you're always thinking and it's really interesting. And then, I don't know, God, I've never thought about why I love it so much. <laughs> it just feels right for me. And it's I'm such a seminal role. It. You know, how, how the actors know to act if you didn't clap the board. If I didn't clap the board. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so did you train in that particular role? You know, when you when you had um, credits as a camera trainee, is that what you were training to do? Or camera trainee is kind of a more broad encompassing of all the different roles within the camera department? Yes. Yeah, so the term camera trainee, I think, is very misleading because depending on your skill level a lot of the time if you're an experienced trainee you are just a third assistant which is why they should really be called third assistants but yeah so the there's the thing about training is that you are training to be a loader which is and it's sort of like you are almost the loader's assistant or an extension of them you're taking orders from them you're anticipating mostly what they need and I think it's because the loader is basically in charge of the floor in charge of everything they need someone else to be doing all the little things like keeping things tidy or just it the loader can't leave set so you're the as the trainee you're the person who does the things that they need done 
mm-hmm. um, or you're anticipating what they need and then if they ask for it you say oh I've already done that and then you get yeah branding points. lots of kudos <laughs> <Brownie> points, yes <laughs> um, exactly you also have a credit on the tv show Succession which I'll admit when I saw that on your IMDb page I was deeply impressed I uh, I'm very obsessed with that show but I'd love to know what your experience was like on that show and perhaps how working on a TV set differed um, from working on a film set, if at all? So I only did a week on it. I was because I was just part of the splinter unit. We were in, I mean, the whole shoot was only a few weeks anyway, because mm. most of it shot in the States. And then they did, I think, a couple of episodes in the UK. And we were in a castle in Gloucestershire and they shoot on film as well. So yeah. It's the, I think the way it was run, it was more similar to a film than to, to other TV series I've been on, just because it was on film. So you have that extra discipline and then the schedule wasn't as tight as it is on TV. And I think there was a lot more emphasis on how it looked. So a lot, a lot of the time with TV, it's about the acting and it's about, it's less about how it looks and it's more about what's actually like happening in the frame. And this felt more like a film and then the, the director was very, yeah, very like image focused, but also very acting focused and that it was just everything was important rather than like they didn't sacrifice anything. Mm. So it was very different to other TV shows that I have worked on, but it was very similar to films that I've worked on. Do you feel like it's beneficial to have experience on both, you know, either to figure out what you like more or just because um, they, they flex different muscles? I think what is the best to have experience in is having experience in short form and long form, because I started out doing music videos and commercials and short form stuff which then when you go up to features if you have like a panicked day where everything's mental you're like this is fine like we've got food we're being looked after I did a music video probably in the same location and we didn't have toilets and we were we worked for like 15 hours we're going home in 10 hours so (laughs) (laughs) we've got this um, yeah so I think it's sort of a bit like baptism by fire if you Mm. do commercials it's sort of well not commercials music videos and short films it tends to harden you so when you move up to the bigger stuff even though it's a lot more pressure the actual environment you're like this is okay like I can deal with this so I think it's nice to have that skill set of being able to switch between manic and structured um so it's very good to have experience in both of those Speaking of the bigger jobs, uh, you've also worked on uh, No Time to Die, which is the upcoming Bond film, and Wonder yes. Woman 1984, uh, which are both huge sets. So what were your experiences on those two films like, and, and what did you learn from them? Uh, oh my God, I had such a good time on both of those films, <laughs> especially last year on Bond. That was, I mean, still, I haven't done that many jobs, but it's still my favourite job that I've ever done, because... I was with such a nice crew and I mean it's Bond. And, yeah, it's Bond. <laughs> like we just come to work and be like, we're doing a Bond film. Like this is insane. <laughs> I think it was just getting comfortable with being on such massive sets. Because there are so many people and it feels like if you mess up, it's almost like the end of the world. When you're a trainee, because it's everything mm-hmm. is the end of the world it's like when you're a teenager and stuff happens and you feel like you're gonna die and then an adult's looking at you like you're fine you're 15 (laughs) yeah chill out (laughs) yeah chill out (laughs) wait till you've got to do taxes (laughs) but yeah I think I just learned I had to learn to be more confident and to be able to because I'm not the best 
speaker I get I get quite anxious and especially like going up to new people and new people who seem very established and can be quite intimidating and learning to be like at the end of the day we are all here to just get this done so they're not going to turn around and be horrible to me if I'm asking for something I mean just the amount of technical knowledge that I learned and how to operate on such a massive scale as well which has then really helped me because when I've gone back to short form it's made them seem a lot easier because I'm like well I I did this with 12 cameras so I think I can handle one like (laughs) you're like this is fine yeah and just like learning from people who have such experience as well like talking to the operators and I guess just being exposed to that as well yeah it just gives you a different perspective with which to kind of walk into another job or to talk about yeah having that in your back pocket as you say yeah and also I'd love to talk a little bit more about you know the the confidence thing and like have you developed any specific like strategies to sort of help you with that or yeah how have you overcome that the main thing has just been like teaching myself as much as possible because if I feel like I know what I'm talking about then I just I just naturally am more confident because it's it's the thing of like not really knowing and then I would like ver on the side of being like very unsure and more and less confident mm. whereas now because my technical my technical knowledge is much better and I know I know what I'm doing I know my job really well I know I'm good at my job it means that I don't doubt myself in the same way I think so it I think a lot of my confidence has just come from experience and then also telling myself that people don't actually hate me that, that <laughs> helps as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely that's a motto that everyone should live by um and what do you do for technical knowledge like are you watching stuff on youtube are you reading like where is that coming from other camera assistants and working and just asking questions because if there is one thing that camera assistants love talking about it's cameras oh my (laughs) god we love talking about our jobs so much so you've come to the right podcast (laughs) and also camera assistants love having trainees who ask loads of questions because it means they're interested. And I have never found that uh, camera assistants don't want to share the knowledge as well. They're always more than willing to like go above and beyond and answer all the questions and teach you anything you need to know. And also, because you're a trainee, it's like no one's expecting you to know everything. The whole point is that you are there to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that environment was always really good, which is also part of the reason why I didn't go to uni, because I was like, why would I pay to learn what I can be paid to learn? It's very wise and also quite brave, like at that age to sort of make that decision. I think I've never, I never, I've never really like properly fit in, um, especially like at secondary school I did more, but I never like really like felt like I was like really part of mm. something like that, like 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 a school or a group of friends or and it meant that I think making decisions like that were going out on a limb never felt unusual because it's like, oh, I've been doing this my whole life. Like I've always done stuff that not everyone else is doing. So this is fine. And also I had very, a very supportive mother who was always like, you know what? You don't have to do what everyone else does. Just do what you want to do. So I think that helped having a good, having a good parent as well. Mm. Yeah, so crucial. Do you feel that like you fit in on a film set? Like what's that environment like? Do you find it supportive? Uh, yes, because I've been very lucky with who I've worked with. I've had very nice camera assistants in terms of like, also because I went to a, a very white school. So I, my, most of my peers were white men, basically. Mm-hmm. So being on a film set, I'm, it's like, it's like I, I've grown up 
talking to these people so I am very comfortable with them I feel like I belong there if that makes sense I've never I've never felt like I don't belong because it's I think I've always felt like the job was very right for me I think this is a good time perhaps to segue to how I discovered you which is on Instagram and it was around the time that Black Lives Matter was becoming kind of resurfaced in our Mm -hmm. kind of cultural conversations in space and you posted this really quite astonishing and brilliant Instagram post um, entitled to my white friends in the UK film industry and I urge everyone I'll link to your Instagram you know in the show notes so people can check it out for themselves but I'd love to sort of dig into that if you're happy to um, and talk a bit more you know what has your experience been like of being one of very few if not the only person of colour on a film set you know how have you navigated that You, you spoke just then about it being an environment that perhaps you were acclimatized to at school. Um, That's a very good word, word, word <laughs> wording it. I'm going to nick that. <laughs> has it ever been a struggle? Has it has it been difficult? It's never been like super difficult, um, and I've been very fortunate with that. I think partly because I I'm mixed. I'm mixed. Well, I'm mixed race, so I'm not. I've had a very different and probably an easier experience than people who are who have darker skin than me. Mm. And I think I was always so focused on the job, but I have always been very aware of it. I think the most, the time that I really went, oh my God, was the tests for Bond actually. And I turned up and not only was I the only woman, but I was also the only person of colour. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. I'm literally, because I think we did a health and safety briefing. So the entire crew all stood around in a circle and I just looked around it and went, oh shit. I just looked around. And I was like, there are over a hundred people here and I am the like the only sort of semblance of semblance that's not the right word I'm the only sort of like whisper of diversity Mm. here and that was a bit like oh oh my god I've had experiences like that quite a lot just being like oh I'm the and then I guess it's it's never I mean no one's ever been like out and out a racist but it's it's like lots of microaggressions like the thing of people asking if they can touch my hair and it's like well no I'm at work and also I don't know you and then I've had like people go at me saying that I'm pronouncing my own name wrong I like I remember talk, like this I can't remember I think he was in the art department this guy was like um was like oh Mahalia Mahalia and I was like no it's it's uh it's, it's Mahalia and then he was like uh well I like and I was like yeah the, oh he said oh well I say Mahalia Jackson and I said yeah no I'm named after her it's Mahalia because she was she was a really famous famous gospel singer in the states I'm like, yeah no no it's Mahalia I'm named after and he's like well me and my family have always said Mahalia so it's Mahalia and I was just like okay fine I'm just not going to argue with this man about how to pronounce my own name but and that's um, the colonization of language for you Jesus yeah <laughs> wow yeah, and I guess I mean, then like you, you are you do get asked fairly ignorant questions about your hair as well, and you sort of just like, mm, yeah, like. <laughs> but for the most part, it's been fine. But obviously, none of it is acceptable. Yeah, yes. and I, I feel um, like that is what this strain of conversation is kind of targeted more towards. That's what I'm seeing more. You know, it's not just about calling someone an out and out racist and being like there's a certain type of person that is you know, responsible for that behavior and other people yeah. are not culpable it's kind of like we're all part of the same system and you yeah. know as white people we're all benefiting from it it's kind of yeah. it's calling that out more which is what is encouraging to me is I haven't seen that kind of dialogue happening before where it's like you know you don't you don't have to be 
calling someone anything or, or speaking to them in like a denigrating way. To have still participated in the way that society or the film industry demonstrates a bias towards white people. You know, we we need to call it out more. I mean, you know that, you, your Instagram post did that brilliantly. Yeah, and um, this change in the rhetoric is so exciting. That whole week when everything started happening was like, it was very stressful and very painful, but also really, really exciting because it was like, oh shit, people are like, people are starting to listen. And I can have these conversations now without feeling like I'm burdening people or feeling like I'll get like had a go out or someone will turn on me it's like and I feel very justified and I guess safer to be able to express how like my experience and how I felt and how the world is different for me and how I and I'm just like able to acknowledge that and have conversations with it so yeah now I'm yeah it's it's been a it's been a good good few weeks <laughs> so was that the first time you felt like it was safe to post something like that on Instagram yes yeah I remember just it all happening. I was like, I can't, I, cause I guess I'm in a very unique position in that, especially in features, there's like me and two other black loaders, which is like mental. And I was like, well, I'm sort of one of very, well, three people who are in this position, who work on the films that are this big and can say this and have access to the people who can make a difference in this industry. Like, from the like the top level down so I was just like I can't say nothing and that's why I wrote this yeah you use the word mindful in the post and um, particularly around people in positions of power when it comes to diversity in hiring practices um, can you maybe unpack what that word you know means to you and and what you hope employers are more cognizant of moving forward yes well I guess because in an I I've had a lot of discussions about how in an ideal world obviously everyone what would happen is that the hiring pool would be like completely equal and like would would be very diverse and then we just pick the person who's best for the job Mm. but that isn't how the world works and so but then but like that isn't how the world works so we have to make an effort to get people of color into these spaces and to give them well it's equity is you don't you don't just give everyone equality of opportunity because if someone is way further ahead, then giving everyone the same opportunity just keeps the person who's ahead ahead already. Yeah. So it's like it's leveling that playing field, but then also being aware the other end of tokenism of just going, we just need to hire a person of color. It doesn't matter. And then the problem is they might not be like super qualified for the job because you've just gone, you've just hired someone because of the color of their skin. You haven't actually looked at because there are it's not like there aren't people of color who are qualified for that for the for like any job it's just that they're not on lists and they don't know you um with like they don't know people at production companies etc um and yeah and it's about like creating equity and just being aware of yeah tokenism and not just because also if you token hire someone and just put them in a very white space then all of a sudden they become the spokesperson for all people of color um, or all people of their particular race, and then they won't feel comfortable in that space. So you've got someone, you've hired someone because of the colour of their skin, just so you look visibly diverse. But if you're not changing the way you treat them and not changing how your the mindset of your staff and your working practices, then that ho- that hiring becomes pointless. Mm-hmm. So it's like finding the balance between those two sides, I think, is what I mean when I say mindful. 
and it kind of functions as a stopgap in that way doesn't it it's kind of on on this one set and in this one job we're kind of uh we're fulfilling a quota but we're not doing yeah. actually anything to sustain the presence of people of color in the film industry we're not doing anything to uplift them and elevate them into the positions of power we're just kind of patting ourselves on the back for saying yeah well we've we've you know we have a diverse cast look at us yeah exactly yeah. you just put that amazingly <laughs> thank you that, that's one of the very few times I've been waffle a lot on this podcast that's the great <laughs> thing about being able to edit it yeah. <laughs> on that note Mahalia can I ask how you feel about the term BAME or B-A-M-E which for those that don't know stands for um, Black Asian and Minority Ethnic because I mean speaking about mindfulness it it feels to me like that's something that we should just be more conscious of, like the language that we use to refer to people of colour. I, I don't know if you agree, so please, you know, step in or uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I just, in my mind, that is quite an othering concept and it's often used in the context of, of schemes and, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for um, a BAME person or, or we're inviting BAME people and it's in that uh, sort of, you know, it's a microcosm or it's it's this one mentorship or sort of like it's this it's this one effort as opposed to a a larger or more lasting um, impactful um, measure to 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 include people. Um, also, just like you know, inviting or extending an offer to to bane people. Just you know, there are power structures inherent within that, and also that language feels quite exclusive. As I said, it, it feels like a bit like an othering or like it's a betting a system that we should be dismantling. That's long-winded, but um, <laughs> I would just I would just like to know what your thoughts are on that that term and um, yeah how how you how you feel about it. Yes, it's it's weird. I I I totally agree with that, um, and I sort of have a problem with the word minority because I guess in Western countries, in the UK, in the US, people of color are the minority, but worldwide, we're not. In the world, 70% of people are people of colour and 30% of them are white. So that and that thing of minority, I think it it keeps us like lesser because it's like, oh well, why should we serve like why why should we pander to the minority? There are fewer of them. And so I have a problem with that. I prefer like the term people of colour because it's just like that's all we are. It's very, it's very descriptive. Yeah, it's just that one word. It's, yeah, minority is what I have a problem with. And then also, yeah, the thing of, like, we're looking for a BAME person. It's that whole, it's very, like, tokenistic rather than being, like... But, again, like, the hiring rhetoric has sort of changed as well because a lot of things are going... Like, a lot of DPs are going, I want a young person of colour to come with me and to, like, actually sustain them in the career rather than being, like, we have this job well, we have to hire someone who's black. It's, yeah, the whole thing is changing. It's pushing more towards equity than tokenism, which I think is, which is great. Yeah, it's just those small, exactly like semantic shifts, like, and and calling people out when it, when they get it wrong, because that's the only way we're going to learn is like, yeah, well, actually asking people what they feel comfortable with or, you know, what's, what's best, I think is also, yeah, just a good thing that I feel like I'm noticing more around this time around. And I mean, final point on this, um, do you feel hopeful for a future that, you know, has more equity and is better representative? Yes, I do. And I think this has started, inspired a lot of people to 
set up either like lists or just Instagram accounts that are just highlighting people of colour working in the industry. I'm setting up an organisation, which I won't talk about, but it will happen. (laughs) Watch this space. Watch watch this space. Um, (laughs) And just like a lot of people are looking at going into schools and talking about how the like a lot of the thing is that people of colour aren't taught that these that young kids aren't taught that these role, job roles exist. And it's sort of like you can go into these schools and be like, are your grades not very good? Welcome to the film industry. None of ours are. <laughs> like, like there are all these, and it's like my friend was saying that she was having a look and a lot of the advice for people who are practical, who aren't necessarily as academic is just like join the army. And she was like, that is so depressing. But they can you're telling them to join the army they could just become a camera assistant or a grip or and like a spark and they would be doing a practical job and they wouldn't be have to they wouldn't have to be killing people which would be quite nice well, yeah, yeah that's so true like I see those adverts like even now like so regularly you know it's like um can you fix can you fix a bike can you fix a car then maybe you can fix a ship or something else yeah um, and it's like join the navy well they, they could do those so easily for film industry yeah yeah or just like even not necessarily even advertising they're just going oh by the way there's this whole industry that no like hardly anybody knows exists and usually there is I feel like you could put almost anyone into a job role in the industry it's almost like anybody can fit into some area of the home industry just because it is so vast because there are office jobs there are like there is there's accounting there's law there's law like it's not just beyond set stuff and like distribution and post and yeah it's just such a wide range and there are so oh, sorry and there are so many personality types that it feels a shame that people aren't taught that these exist absolutely um and switching gears a little bit I know you've worked okay. as a cinematographer on some short films um, yes is that kind of where you'd like your career to go or if not what is your ambition so yes, I have short stuff, and but I don't want to be a cinematographer. I want to be an operator on like the feature films that I'm working. So that's the trajectory that I'm on. I said that word so weirdly. That's the trajectory that I'm <laughs> it's on. It's quite hard to say. <laughs> it's quite hard to say. <laughs> but I shoot short films and music videos if I think they're going to be fun, really. And then my sister is a recording artist, and she directs all her own music videos. So I shoot all of them for her. We work as like a little directing dp Mm. duo so those are like i'll do forever i'll always do those and i guess it's just i don't i don't see myself doing it as a career which to the annoyance of some people who i've actually had people had a go at me being like no this is something that you should do i'm like but i don't want to and they're like nope you're doing it i'm like well i'm not but (laughs) thank you is Um, that because it's like the top role in the kind of camera department hierarchy and so it's almost like wait you're not punching for the biggest role like what's wrong yeah it's like why would you not want to go to top because it's too much responsibility and lighting isn't the most interesting thing in the world for me it's very interesting but i prefer to focus on the camera and the movement of it I, the way I conceive of it is that it's kind of you know working in the camera department is like learning a language and so just having that sort of flexibility so even if you're doing if, even if you're um DPing a short film like that's going to benefit you presumably being a camera operator and and yeah. doing what you do now like it's all just good to just to, to kind of tussle with that language yeah exactly it's just like practicing it the the further up roles but on a smaller scale so you've got less pressure you've got you haven't got a really famous actor in front of you you haven't got loads of equipment that you haven't like used in that role properly it's very low pressure you're doing a short Mm. film doesn't matter yeah so exactly yeah 
and how do you how do you work up to becoming a camera operator like you know uh, how do you conceive of that working for you is it continuing doing what you're doing now for a certain amount of time and then just making the leap or is there you know someone that you're looking up to that perhaps you're emulating their career yeah so it tends to be the traditional route up is just you just go up the hierarchy so you work as a loader for a bit and then you could work as a folks puller for a bit and then you work as an operator and then sometimes you step up to PP, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of, it's almost like you do it until you feel ready. And then if you're lucky enough to, well, fortunate enough to be working with people who want you to step up and will give you the work, then it, it just tends to work like that. It's mm-hmm. quite nice. It's, it's all very, uh, it's a lot of nepotism as well, but the thing is, it's, that's the, that's the thing that I find about the film industry is that that nepotism is a double-edged sword because it, it, it does like hold, keep people out. But it also means that once you break into that, you stay in that. So once I did my first feature, that was it. I was, I was in those circles and I didn't feel like I was going to get, get kicked out or that I was being given less work because of the color of my skin or my gender. Like I've, I've never felt that. So I, that's why I find it frustrating. It's just like, if we just get these kids in if we just get these kids of color in we just need to give them that foot in the door and then they're in people don't once they get people get into features they don't tend to leave unless unless it's by choice if you're good at your job you do just keep working Mm. because then that's that's when you'd have to be actively racist to stop someone from getting another job because you'd have to be saying you're good at your job but no I don't want you on this set whereas it's not that it's the kind of the underhand the kind of just the sinister stereotypes and and the barriers and the the prejudices they are kind of to me is what's stopping progress yeah yeah exactly Hmm. I I actually can't remember what the question was before I brought it around Uh, to that me neither (laughs) but I'm glad you made that point (laughs) (laughs) If it's word of mouth, how also do you advocate for yourself in terms of getting other jobs and other roles? Is it just kind of nudging people saying, you know, I'm maybe interested or what are you doing um, proactively? Um, yeah, I think a very good thing is to email people. I didn't I didn't do much of that because for my personality type, it didn't I didn't really feel comfortable, like pest, not pestering people, but just like it felt too much for me to reach out and be like, oh, I'm free, by the way. But I got very lucky is that I got in with people who were working a lot and liked me enough to just keep bringing me onto the jobs and recommending me to other people. But it's the thing of like, you'll be on one film and then they'll have additional crews in who will then go on to other jobs and they'll be like, oh, I remember that trainee I met that other day. Can I have their number? And then you get work like that. So I think the best way to advocate for yourself is to talk to as many people as possible work as hard as possible and I mean just be nice and good at your job and if you make a good impression I was very smiley I think that's what helped me I am very smiley yeah you've got a very infectious personality so I can see I can see how that works (laughs) (laughs) and Um, is it sometimes about also like just owning what you want to do next like saying okay now I want to I want to learn that skill or now I want to focus Paul like do you think that's sometimes part of it are you putting out those feelers now like uh, oh, I'm way off that. Yeah, I've just stepped up to load properly. So I'm going to be doing this for years. But yeah, no, you definitely have to be like, no, I'm committing to this. I'm doing this. Like with a lot of, a couple of the films I got with Wonder Woman and with Bond, actually, before I got them, mm. I made a point of going, I want to work on that film next. And mm. if I knew people who either were going on to them or who I knew knew people who were going on to them, I would just put it out there. I'd just be like, oh yeah, I'd love to do this film next. That would be great. Like, imagine that. And then when it happened, it was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I guess if it's 
well I guess it's like manifesting isn't it but just Mm. like putting that energy out there and if people hear oh if people associate you with that as well then when they get on the job and they're like oh we have to choose a trainee and they're like oh I had a trainee who said that they wanted to work on this film why don't we just get her or them and I'm wondering if you've um had like a big learning curve or something that you uh consider well maybe that you wish that you learned earlier in your career to drive because it's such a big part of the job yeah I think just being able to get yourself to set and Mm. the stress of having to get yourself to a set with public transport for like 7 a.m is one of the most stressful things in the entire world and something that I wish upon no no person (laughs) not even my worst enemy it's um or like having to get up at three in the morning for a shoot and you don't start until eight because that's how far you have to travel um so I think yes learning to drive does that count yeah absolutely it's a very practical tip actually oh do you have any others oh yeah oh well a little a little tip to do with driving I'm very eco-conscious and I used to feel very guilty about driving so much but if you don't mind paying a little bit more for petrol if you use the shell app uh they uh put enough money into like peat bogs or planting trees to make your fuel carbon neutral oh wow okay um so yeah if you if you pay with the shell app it makes your fuel carbon neutral and you don't have to go in and pay um so it's very good for contact free as well in in these times that's brilliant i'm wondering if there is a project that you are proudest of having worked on oh okay so two ends of the spectrum it would be bond and uh my sister's music video ddd because that is the most stressed i've ever been in my entire life but i couldn't be prouder of that and we me my sister and the producer had a meeting about it the other day well just like had a FaceTime call and we were talking about when we made it and we'd sort of forgotten a lot of things and we were like oh my god yeah I remember that that was mental do you remember that we didn't have a camera until the day before we started shooting oh yeah do you remember how we flew everyone out to LA and no one got paid because they were all just there for free like it was just, we were just like oh this is oh, oh yeah and like how we got a car stuck in the dirt like yeah. and this random man showed up and how we <laughs> how we drove through a gun range like jeez wow yeah it's what I imagine childbirth to be like and that you yes. suppress the memory of it in order to allow yourself to do it again. Like in order You're to like, yeah, let's again. make another one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You have to suppress the pain of uh, yeah, shooting to be able to yeah. get back on set. <laughs> Finally, um, what is a film that you've seen uh, by a woman director, it can be short or feature length, that you think is an undervalued gem that you'd like to highlight and recommend? So any Greta Gerwig film, obviously, mm. that's like without saying because she's my favourite director. But I would say one of my favourite films is Palo Alto, which is yes. by yeah. by uh, by Gia Coppola. And objectively, it's not the best film in the world. But you know when you have films and they just get you there? Yeah, it's very mm. special to me because of that. So Palo Alto. Would be I love that shot where she's like in the locker. And um, she's like, in, yeah, she's like, yeah. she's like crouched down in the locker. Yeah, like, yeah, that's a really good. I think that's one of my favorite Emma Roberts performances. She get, she often gets a bad rap, but I like her in that. She is really good in that. Yeah. Can I ask what you love particularly about Greta Gerwig's films? I don't know. They just have. Well, funny enough, my two favorite directors are her and her husband Noah Baumbach. It's just 
I, they just have like, I feel like they have almost like a soul and I just really connect to them. And I think they're very well made and she has such good taste and yeah. And the way she makes films is very empathetic and very sensitive and just, yeah, very, I just, I just love them. I get along with them very well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that affection, isn't it? For like all the characters on set, but also the process of filmmaking, like that kind of seems to come across as well. That just, yeah herself and presumably everyone on that set loves what they're doing by extension yeah and that comes through on the screen mm. yeah who's your favorite director Ooh, throwing it throwing it back um suddenly really startled i think at the moment and i'm quite protective and defensive about this because it's celine siama and a lot of people are like oh yeah portrait of a lady on fire and i'm like no but i've loved her from the beginning man like i've seen yeah you're, i'm from, an og fan <laughs> from, from water lilies onwards um but she's there's this really great film i think it's probably her uh her maybe least appreciated film but it's my favorite of hers and it's called tomboy uh, and it's it's oh, that's on my list. I didn't yeah. realize she directed that. Yeah, it's it's fantastic, and I, I love it. So yeah, she's my favorite, and and she's someone that you kind of uh, I think ha- have seen kind of grow. Like her career is very. She's made mistakes on screen, but that hasn't stopped her from getting other opportunities. You know, I just I hate the idea that a woman can make maybe one lesser or mediocre film and they're no longer and then they get on those off. lists. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and she hasn't. She's kind of gotten better and better and kept striving for something more ambitious. And that's what you see in I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is this kind of culmination of her career thus far. Definitely watch Tomboy. <laughs> maybe she's my favorite director now. <laughs> After <Excellent>. that scene. <laughs> Nahalia, thank you so, so much. This has been um, one of my favourites that I've recorded so far. Um, And it's been such a great conversation. Thank you for your time and honesty. Thank you for asking me. I feel like I didn't, I hope I didn't speak too much. Thank you for downloading and listening to this episode of best girl grip i'll be back next week with another interview and in the meantime i hope you have a great week 